Shattered to the Core. Today, you're going to hear from Valerie J. Walsh. She's an author, a corporate flight attendant, and also someone who has dealt with a lot of challenges, including anxiety, depression, alcoholism, the death by suicide of a very close loved one, and uh, making some painful medical decisions. So buckle up. This is going to be quite the adventure. Welcome to the Pilot Wife Podcast, your ongoing checklist for navigating your first class life as a pilot wife and aviation family. I'm your co-captain, Jackie Elmer. I've been a pilot wife for over three decades, and I cannot imagine any other lifestyle. Yes, there's no doubt it's a mix of turbulence and blue skies, but what life isn't? I'm here to bring you the best that the aviation life has to offer. If you have a topic suggestion or a story to share on the show, details are at the end. And if you want the Pilot Wife Survival Guide and Checklist, go to pilotwifechecklist.com. Now, stow your baggage, strap in, and let's unpack the Pilot Wife Life. So Valerie, welcome to the show. I appreciate you being here. Thank you, Jackie. I appreciate you asking. Yeah, absolutely. And gosh, we have a lot to discuss. And I know my listeners are in for a fascinating journey with your story, starting with your mother's death by suicide, a double mastectomy, your experience with alcoholism, depression, your own mental health challenges. Man, we have a lot to discuss and I know it's going to benefit a lot of people. So first of all, Tell us a little bit of your background and how aviation fits into it. Okay, so this eclectic, it really eclectic background. <laughs> I, um, well, professionally, I grew up in Syracuse, New York. And when I first moved to the Northeast, when I moved into this little tiny town in New England where I live now, um, I got a job at a local gym. So, you know, I started off doing all the different jobs, front desk, I worked you know, I didn't really didn't have any background in fitness other than, you know, having to do what I need to do to pass the presidential fitness test in high school. Like I was not your athletic, you know, high school athlete at all. But anyhow, so that was one of my first jobs when I moved to New England. And then I by the encouragement of my colleagues, they encouraged me to, you know, continue on and grant my education and become a personal trainer, a group fitness instructor. So I did that for a very long time, like over 20 years, all through having my kids, marriage, a little bit. And um, how aviation came into play was I, I trained a lot of pilots and, and flight attendants, mostly in the private sector. A lot that canceled out on me because their, their, their schedules were so chaotic. Yep. But I became really, when I came really close to this, this one particular flight attendant encourage me she's like you would be fantastic you know it's it's fun you get to travel you're you're very sociable you know I, I can see you doing it. so I waited I waited till my daughter graduated high school in 2018 and then I went for it that's awesome okay so um how long have you been doing that um in private aviation as a corporate flight attendant yes since 2018 okay so about four years give or yeah. take. That's awesome. Cool. Yeah, it is. You know, 
especially if you can call the shots a little bit, which sometimes you can with, you know, the corporate side, sometimes not, but um, you do get to see a lot of places. You get to experience a side of life that most people don't. And I've done a little bit in corporate flight attending. So I know not, not a ton, but a little bit on a very high end scale to where I felt like I got introduced to stuff that, wow, was quite amazing. So it was fun. Yeah. 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 So now you have a program called the core fitness method and what is it and how did that come to be? Well, when I was training, when I was actually training, I, I would say, I do, I still do that. Like I'll look at my evening schedule and say, okay, you know, to the handful of clients that still have, you know, I can train you three times a month or, or whatever it may be. But when I was active training and it was my full-time job, I had something called the core running program and the acronym core stood for What's your challenge? What's your race going to do? What are your obstacles that are going to get in your way? What is your reason, your why? And E, what is exercise that's going to get you there, right? So that was that acronym for like many, many years. And then flash forward to publishing my my book, my memoir, Shattered to the Core, I started like just becoming more open to, okay, what do I do next? Like, where is this book going to take me? And I knew that I wanted to do something in mental health. I wanted to become a mental health advocate, but like, what, how can I serve? How can I best serve to use my, my education as a personal fitness trainer? And what has helped me in my life where I am now, which sure we're going to dive into, and what does that look like? And so I took that acronym CORE and I, I, I tweaked it to include things I've learned from other people. Like nothing I've ever done in life that I've been successful at, I've done alone. I've done it by listening to great podcasts like your your, your, your show. I've done it by reading a book. I've done it by being a part of something where somebody's doing something really well and I wanted to learn how. So I started listening a lot to leaders in the, in the industries of health and wellness and mindset, and all of that kind of coaching. And I... I tweaked my core acronym to fit more, not just the physical part, but the mindset as well. So now that core fitness method stands for core. What is your challenge? What is your crisis? Oh, what are the, what is the outcome that you want for yourself? And that's a big one. We, we can get to that later on. R, always being your reason, your why. And E, how are you going to execute that? What, what are the skills that you're going to pick up? And for everybody, that looks different. It does. And that's beautiful. And I love that. I, I, uh, I've been a mindset and peak performance coach myself. A peak performance, not so much just around fitness, but kind of all of it. How can you be a peak performer in every aspect of your life? And I really love that acronym. It resonates with me because, you know, just like you said, I mean, mindset is probably 95% of all of it. Um, you know even as you know, as a fitness trainer, you know, you can't out exercise a bad diet and, you know, just so many things. So it really is getting intentional with all the steps that we take in everything and figuring out, okay, I I'm here and I have this challenge or, or crisis or whatever it is. I can either choose to stay stuck here or mm -hmm. I can look like you say, what's the outcome I want and then take the rest of the steps. And I love that. That's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, and I know as a coach, that's a touchy subject sometimes, you know, an outcome's going to be what's not an outcome's going to be like, we could take all the right steps and pick up all the right tools. And sometimes you're just going to have a bad day, you know, but then you're going to look at those tools and be like, oh, well, meditation works for me. 
listening to, you know, a book on, on I was going to say tape, but <laughs> <laughs> listening to an audio book helps, or I really like this speaker, that's going to give me the skill set or the grace to deal with whatever that outcome is going to be. And, you know, that's always fascinated. And if I could tell a really quick story, it'll involve my son. You know, like I always try to, I, I, I tend to fall back back on athletics when I use examples because that's just where I am in life right now. I'm watching my son who is going to be a junior in high school, um, you know, really, and his running. So he's a cross country distance runner and also uh, track field. But he, but he really found this niche last year, and did this race called the Steeplechase, which I wasn't really that familiar with, and for listeners who are not, I'll, it's basically a race around a track, like a 400-meter track, and it has these barriers you have to jump over. They're not hurdles. They're a little bit different. And then it has this water pit for the last barrier that you have to kind of jump and project yourself straight forward. If you go down, then you'll end up falling and harder to get out. Anyways, long story short, my son did really well, and he made it to national. We get to nationals and we're watching him at, um, at the, uh, this field where they do the pen relays in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, big event, big sponsored event, we're all excited. And he's, you know, young, he's barely 16 years old and he made this event for steeplechase and uh, he fell. He fell. And I grabbed the mother's arm next to me and she goes, yeah, that was, that was your son. You know, I'm like, okay, but what did he do? He got right back up. He got right back up and he shot forward. Now, it was not the outcome he wanted. He wasn't looking to place. He was looking for a specific time. But what I saw from my son is the resilience he had to deal with the, the outcome that was. And all of that has been taught to him by people in his life. I'd like to think myself, but it's been taught to him by his teammates, his coaches. It's, it's sometimes innately in people, not always. And, but it's something that we can learn. So that's what's always, that's what's fascinated me is to watch somebody be like, wow, how can that person bounce back from something that others may find it so hard to do? And that's okay because certain things have knocked the wind out of my students a little bit longer, like my mother's death. And I had to really dig deep and put the work in every single day. And it took a long, long time, but I had to do little things consistently every single day to move through that pain. That's a great story. And we're, we're going to come right back to your mother's death here in just a sec. But I wanted to kind of uh, add on to that, what you were saying. You know, it's so true. I, I have a saying, life is 50-50, because it really is. We have this concept that our goal is to be happy 100% of the time. And the reality of it is that's impossible because bad things are going to happen. Yep. People are going to pass away, as you've experienced. Um, you're you're going to get disrupted here, disrupted there. Some many things outside of your control with other people who are close to you. So pursuing happiness, um, even though it was a great movie, uh, is, you know, <laughs> kind of sets you up for disaster. Pursuing peace and acceptance and developing those skill sets to work us through those challenging times, I think, are what really, really matter. And it it really is, you know, it's a skill set. It really truly is. And it's like you said, nobody gets it right all the time. Even at your at your best and you're most aware, and when you're being very intentional and using the tools, sometimes you're going to get disrupted by a bad day. Sometimes those depressing thoughts are going to come in, you know, trickle in, and you're going to find yourself not necessarily able to kick it for that day. But when you have those tools in place and you realize this is just a phase, 
I can, I will, can and will work through this, then you know that success is always, you know, just right outside, right, right there. And you will ultimately reach it. Yeah. And, you know, I think I, look, I put a lot of pressure on myself, like, you know, that you always have to get over, you know, like, oh, you know, in time heals all wounds. Well, no, it doesn't. You know, I like to say time works if I do. And I'm never going to get over certain things in my life, but I'm certainly going to move through them. I'm going to move forward. It's going to be with me, but I don't have to sit in that pain. So, you know, that like, you know, learning that, taking that pressure off myself was huge. I'll bet. So let's talk a little bit um, about your mother's suicide and your process to grieve and understand it. Well, my process was really messy in the beginning because I didn't have one. Um, so in 2013, my mother died by suicide. And I, I want to say the reason why we say that don't say commit is something that I learned um, through becoming a mental health advocate. So when I put the manuscript through for my book, I had it read by professionals in the mental, mental um, health field and somebody flagged that. And they said, oh, no, 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 no. If we're really going to talk about mental illness as being an illness, you wouldn't say that. Like if somebody passed away from cancer, you would never say, oh, they committed cancer. You know, and that may sound like, oh, okay. So we had to do like a whole global editing on my document because I put it in there. So I say that because I made that mistake. And then when you, you know, when you know better, you do better. So now um, I, so in 2013, yes, my mother passed away from the final symptom of her depression. She was 59 years old. It wasn't like it was a shock. She struggled for many, many years. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of people that deal with not everybody, but oftentimes you'll see a dual diagnosis of depression or other complex mental illnesses and addiction. Not always the case, but that was my mother. Unfortunately for her, she was overtreated in some areas and under-treated enough. Her life wasn't easy. I mean, she when she was 18 years old, she found out she was pregnant with my sister. And then um, she got married because that's what she did back then. And uh, they lived together for a short time. And then she had my sister. I think it was two months later, she found out she was pregnant with me. <laughs> so now she's got two little girls. And, um, you know, I'm not going to go down that whole road, but she didn't stay married to my birth father. And it was hard. She had a really, really hard time. And, you know, back then, a lot of people treated anxiety and depression and things we don't talk about with masking it. And her first introduction to value was in her early 20s. So she became what I would call um, a functioning, a highly functioning um, addict not necessarily pills all the time, mostly alcohol. You know, I had, I, had, I had a wonderful childhood, but it was chaotic. Like I am a child of chaos. I watched my mother struggle with putting food on the table, with moving us to different apartments, asking family help, living through the same of that. And, um, you know, just being a, a victim of her circumstance. So when she finally gave way to that, I will tell you, in making the timeline for her service, I could literally see it back. Like putting the pictures up on the poster board, I'm like, oh, 
that's when it really got bad. So the symptoms from her mental illness, underlying issue in her addiction, started building up. It was a progression. She became isolated. She no longer wanted to go to work. You know, like there, and it wasn't like, I shouldn't say no longer wanted to work. Circumstances built up. She could no longer, you know, she was a fighter. She was a fighter. But what she never learned to do are the things that I've learned to do now because I, because only because I watched what she did try. And that was admitting she had a problem. That was not overcompensating. And surrendering, like just surrendering. If somebody asks you what's going on, not always answering, oh, I'm fine. And, you know, keeping all the balls up. She kept all the balls up there until she put it. So in 2013, um, she was in a place where she had isolated. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I wasn't shocked. I, I knew the morning she passed because I couldn't get a hold of her all night. And then that she was gone. So she had taken um, an overdose of pills and, um, and died. And it was intentional? It was intentional. Okay. We had a phone conversation the night before and she said some things to me that I knew for a fact. Do you, and this may be a difficult question and, and, and so I hope not, but I know you've written the book and you've spent a lot of time with it. Do you think that there are, are ways you could have, not, not signs that you missed, obviously we, we, you know, we know that and it's always easy to look back. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, so, so I guess really my question is more around what advice do you have for other people? And especially I think when it comes to our parents, you know, we're many of us are, we're still close and connected to our parents, which I know you and your mom where you were in contact, but sometimes the parental relationship, we're busy with our own lives. We've got our own stuff going on and we don't often think about parenting our parents, if that makes sense. Like it, it's kind of, we don't take on that role for a long forever in some cases as they get much older sometimes we do but we don't necessarily look for their signs and symptoms Jen, does that make sense do you know totally, where i'm going totally with that? does and let me tell you there's nothing off the table jackie like i like to say i can do these podcasts and have these conversations when i can put those emotions up on the yeah. you know what i mean <clears throat> so because it's important to get the facts out there um for me my mother had a dual diagnosis of addiction and mental illness and because I'm going to speak to the addiction part of that, you can't taste drunk. You, you can't, to coddle, to, and I say that drunk meaning not in an offensive way. That's just the saying. Like you literally can't taste drunk. To coddle a drunk, you kill them. So what I wish I knew was to be a little bit more direct that if you think somebody might be suicidal, to ask them straight out, are you suicidal? Now, I did ask my mom that the night before. It was too late. The damage was somewhat done because you can't force somebody to, to, to accept the willingness for help. Like I could have called, and this is, you have to remember we had a history. I could have called an ambulance to come get her. I could have done all of those things. I think by, at that point, not to sound hopeless, it's just the way it was. I think at that point, unfortunately for her, she fell down a rabbit hole that was too deep for her to dig herself out. I am a true believer that we need to take the step before, way before you you sink down that rabbit and can. And I and that's not to minimize 
you know, sometimes people say to me, oh, fitness, fitness, and I think of me as fitness coach. Well, I can't exercise my way out of this. I, if I, you know, like you have no idea. I do have an idea. Everybody's situation is different. So I want to be real clear that when I'm talking about method, like mindset or preventative method, it is not to minimize if somebody is in an active state of a severe mental illness or addiction. That requires much more than what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. So once this occurred, let, let's let's go back to where we were kind of with your process to grieve it, um, understand it, and, you know, deal with all the aftermath of it. So I, um, okay, so right after she had passed away, I was turning 40, so I had all these like doctor appointments lined up, you know, and and one of those was to have my uh, ultrasound and mammogram because, you know, I'm one of those. Ladies, along with your mammogram, they have to do the ultrasound. And that was just like, I don't even know, a month or two after my mother's passing. And they found these, um, they found uh, images on my ultrasound that were concerning. So I'm going to really like not get into the big, big details of that. But essentially, I was a thyroid cancer survivor already. And they found precancerous cells in my breast tissue. So right away I knew I just knew how emotionally I handled my thyroid cancer I'm like no I'm not doing this again like I I had the lumpect I went down the road of having the lumpect lump, excuse me lumpectomies and biopsies and I'm like I just want to move on like what is going to be the thing I need to do quickest to move on and I knew right away I'm like I'm having a double mastectomy I I just can't deal with it right now like I was a literal survivor like just survival of the fitness, right? So, and I don't regret my mastectomy. I don't mean to sound like that. I just knew right away, like, okay, this is going to trigger a bunch of anxiety. I'm already a hot mess. Like, let me get this surgery. I don't want to have to deal with a medical thing on top of everything. So when I had my surgery, well, what happens is when, when you're removing your breast, they also remove the breast tissue and breast tissue holds estrogen. So that like, whoop, that was like, oh, you have underlying issues of depression that might be in remission. By the way, I like to say that I don't have an active state of depression. My depression is in remission, right? So my depression was somewhat in remission. I mean, I was grieving, but I wasn't, you know, feeling like I had, you know, a scary case of depression going on. Well, <laughs> that will set up that weird ugly head right after my mastectomy. And sure, it was hormonally related at first, but I wasn't doing anything. I was just like, I just wanted to go back to the way life was, right? I wanted to go back to working. I wanted to go back to being a mom, a wife, hanging with my friends. And so I did what I what my, my comfort zone was. I went back to work on the weekend. I would drink and party with other friends who drank and partied like us. And, you know, I thought that everything would be okay. Well, what happened was I started waking up if I drank too much the night before. My response to alcohol literally changed on a physiological level because I didn't feel it, the trauma from losing my mom. I just was like, boom, nope, we're gonna we're gonna move on from that. And I started waking up with in, with panic, with panic attacks and in cold sweat 
And if anybody's ever experienced the physical symptoms of a panic attack, you'll know what that feels like. I just have this angst, this icky dread feeling like in the cavity of my chest pretty much any time I drink. And then it built up to where it was mornings when I didn't even drink before. So I was going down that same route, right? So to answer your question, I couldn't really grieve my mother properly until I took the step I needed to take to admit that I had a problem with alcohol. So, so your battle with alcoholism. All right. So let me, I just want to make sure I have the timeline right. Um, your mother's death, shortly thereafter, you're diagnosed with precancerous or, you know, looming cancer. You make the very painful, I'm sure, decision on the one hand as a woman to uh, choose to do a double mastectomy um, and then kind of pushed all of it aside and began to self-medicate and numb with alcohol. That sound about right? Now, was so the alcoholism, um, was it always there, would you say? Yeah. (laughs) Were you a heavy drinker before, but this just exacerbated it? I was a functioning alcoholic throughout my whole whole life like I've always been you know be, been able to stop drinking but not sober for long periods like I've stopped drinking when I went through my thyroid cancer stuff I've stopped I stopped drinking or obtained some alcohol when the kids were really little you know I did all those things that alcoholics will tell themselves oh you don't have a problem with alcohol because you don't drink like that you know I didn't I never drink by myself I never during the day you know all that, those things but I will say um I remember, and I heard this in the recovery program that I go to, and forgive me if I don't divulge what that name is, because I like to honor the tradition of my program, but if you're picking up what I'm putting down, if you're part of my recovery program, you'll know what I mean. (laughs) Um, They say most alcoholics remember their first drink, and I'm that alcoholic. I remember when I was 15, I opened up the refrigerator in my parents' garage, and I like picked up like a Utica vest or a Milwaukee's piece or whatever the gross beer was that I picked up and I guzzled it and I called my my I have two guy best friends that live across the street from me and I called them up and I'm like oh, you'll never guess what I just did and I immediately wanted more like immediately I immediately wanted to feel more of what that beer gave me and it was more of what I couldn't feel yet. I didn't have the skill to feel that way about myself yet. And that was my whole life. That my whole life. Yeah. Do you have a personal definition of alcoholism? Because you've, you've said a lot of interesting things, you know, where you don't fit at least the old school image of what an alcoholic is, right? It's kind of, you know, low functioning, sleep all day or start drinking at eight in the morning, you know, staggering through and stumbling through and that type thing, which is not at all the picture that you're defining. So how, how do you define that personally? I, I personally, for me, um, well, I can't define alcoholism because for everybody it's, it's, you know, different. Right. For me, um, I just, I, okay. So I have a mental illness. It's in remission right now. Right. Just like a diabetic can't really, couldn't really safely have sugar or they're going to have to adjust their insulin. Because I have, you know, experienced depression and anxiety, I should not pick up alcohol. I, can, I have an allergy to it. I literally cannot drink safe because there's something in my brain that when I pick up a drink, 
I cannot put it down. I want more of. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, it does. So that for me, I, I, you know, again, what kept me from going to my recovery program was overthinking a lot of things. I like to keep this real simple because I can overthink everything. I literally have an allergy to alcohol. I have bouts of depression and anxiety that I've learned to keep at bay now because I have a different life. And one of those things never to include in my life again is alcohol. How long has it been since your last drink? Well, I should say almost five years, but I should, I'm, I'm four years and however many months and however many days, but September 17, 2022 will be five years. Congratulations. Thank you. Very much. How, how's that? How's that been? How's that five years been? How, how, how many temptations have you had? How have you managed those? Well, I'm really lucky. I'm one of those who, when I stopped drinking, um, I never really had the physical craving for alcohol. So there's a, um, there's a slogan in my program that I came in for my drinking, I stayed for my thinking. And I love that. Like when I first started showing up, like, oh gosh, these cheesy slogans, Ugh. you know, if you could see me on video, I'm like Ugh, gagging. But um, I actually love quotes. You know, I, and that slogan, I really like because it's true. Like, so people in those rooms have taught me how to deal with life when life gets hard, like hard things are still going to happen, you know, but now I have a piece that I didn't know because I just, I, I, I don't, I don't know how else to say it. Like I, I literally for the first time in my life, the last five years have this piece that I had never experienced before. Like I'm always going to have a baseline of anxiety. You know, like that's just not my makeup, <laughs> but you know, I like to take its power away by just dressing it and hitting it because I've learned, you know, by watching somebody shove everything down and admit how they are feeling, you know, it's sometimes if you address it, you take the power away, you know, and those are the kinds of things I've learned. And, you know, I've learned them from many different things, but the, the, the foundation of it is my recovery program, is sobriety. I like to use the AAA actually, and I call that awareness, which you're very aware. And then um, acknowledgement, that's kind of addressing it, just acknowledging instead of trying to push it away. And then acceptance and acceptance doesn't mean condoning something. It's all right, this is what we've got. You know what? And then the fourth day would be action. What are our action steps going to be from that point forward, no matter what it is in your life. But certainly, I mean, that, that's a, that's a very valid one. I always tried to like, you know, my whole life, I always felt like I always had to have the answer. Like I always had to figure things out, including even though I knew like shock that my mom died by suicide. I was shocked when we went to her apartment or in our apartment in the trailer when we showed up. My mom was, she was, she took a lot of pride in how she kept the place. Even growing up when we had small apartments, wherever we lived. She was super creative. She was very artistic. You know, she always kept a beautiful home and she was really proud of that. You know, she would she always make sure her place was in order and her place was, and there were, there wasn't like a note for where the cats were going to go. Like we were just like, what the heck? So that just, you know, shows you that when somebody actually makes that decision, they're literally out of their mind. They're, they're just, they're not in the right place of mind at all because, um, it's just what I would, I would have thought we looked everywhere for this note. But for a long time, there was, even though I didn't ever, I didn't, 
I personally didn't experience regret of I should have stopped. I just, you know, I, I didn't. But what I did experience was when I went through my health there, which is what more of my memoirs about, I wrote a lot about like go through that without my mom because when I had my thyroid cancer, he was there. My husband owns his own business. He had to go to work. That's just the way it is. You know, like that's, you know, he had to literally go to work, I think, the next day after I came home. I mean, you know, not because he didn't want to be there, it's just what we had to do to pay the bills. My mom was there. She was there for every single appointment. And then flash forward to 2013, 14, when I had major surgery, because anybody who's undergone double mastectomy and reconstruction, it's major. And I mean, for the first time, like I thought, oh my God, like, I don't care what age you are. You're always going to watch your mama. You know, you're always going to watch your mama around. And she wasn't there. So that's what I wrote about. Like, if you, if you read the book, there's a lot of people read it like, oh, you, you went into the details of your surgery depth. And I did. So it's really a helpful book for anybody who's going to undergo that type of surgery. But look for the message underneath. I tried to figure so much stuff out. And at the end, I found my peace in going, not for me. That's not for me. That's not my job to figure it out. I can only take care of my I have to surrender all that. Yeah, I was going to ask that. You talk about surrendering. And so I was going to ask, you know, what, what was it that you had to surrender to finally achieve some sense of peace um, with your mother's death, with your diagnosis, with all of it? With my mother's death, death, I had to, um, I had to stop looking for signs she was okay. Like, I when I had, you know, I had a, an uncle when my daughter was born. He died from pneumococcal pneumonia. Thirty-seven years old. He was really young. Um, that was my mom's brother, and we were super close. So, and then I lost my grandpa. Like those were two guys in my life that I was super close with, as you know, I didn't mention my father for a reason. Those men were 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 um in my life and they were um I was really close. So anyhow, when they passed away, I dreamt of them a lot. And I'm just I'm super spiritual. I believe I'm gonna take in a little ride, Jackie, because my dog wants to go out. So here we go, listeners. I'm going to bring my dog outside. So when they passed away or when other people in my life had passed away, I always felt like I knew they were I would see a butterfly, or I would see a journey on the radio, or I would dream of them, or some way, somehow, I knew they were me. With my mom, nothing. Not a dream, not a forced sign that I would ask for out loud, nothing. And, you know, I went to, like, I went to mediums. I, like, I tried all of that. And that's not the, you know, say like if you believe that or not I was just reaching I was reaching for answers I had to let go of that like I I, I knew that I was going to like I was disrupting my own peace by trying to find out if he was finally it so I had to let go of that I had to surrender to the fact that I had a problem with alcohol I had to surrender what other people thought of me and caring about it because you have to remember when I came out that you know, I had a problem with alcohol and I came out as a sober woman. I came out of my community with this book and it wasn't like nobody knew me. <laughs> they knew me from my local gym. 
But it was important for me to like put a face to what does mental illness look like? What does addiction look like? It looks like your your teacher, your coach, your friend, your mother. It looks like, you know, somebody you probably know that you wouldn't think might have a problem with alcohol or might be struggling. So for me, it was surrendering like the shame, the embarrassment of any of that because I knew, I just knew in my gut that there was a purpose. Like I had to take that pain and through it, take it into a purpose. And one of my favorite things, honestly, is, is having conversations like this. I do a lot of talk, but I like these conversations because you're bringing up things that you could bring up in a conversation that I wouldn't even think of standing up in front of a room full of people. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's for sure. You know, it's funny. If, if we can get out of our own way in our own head and, and really accept the purpose and the mission that we're here on this earth to deliver, it's amazing how just being vulnerable and sharing who we are, first of all, how it can positively impact and affect other people, give them hope, give them guidance, all of that. Um, but also people appreciate that. When we, I know for me, when I sometimes get caught up in my own head about something, but then I think about other people in a struggle, I'm not judgmental of them, or I don't think less of them, but we have this tendency to bring that on ourselves, thinking that's mm -hmm. how it's going to be for us. When in fact, you 100%. know, people love to cheerlead other people. 100%. So all that, those, you know, misconceived notions. Now, don't get me wrong. There's some, some peeps out there, sure. but that's okay. Um, there's just. I have that, like, you know, I got in that bad neighborhood of my mind thinking, you know, overthinking it. Like, this is going to be, people are going to be like, oh my gosh, they weren't. I had, oh my God. I had so many people that were very supportive. My community has been tremendous. My family's been very supportive. I haven't had any naysayers, at least not to my face, which that's just fine with me. And all of that, you're right. I was my own worst enemy when it came to that, you know, when it came to publishing the book and going on podcasts and speaking about my own struggles with mental illness and alcoholism. I, you know, in the beginning was my own worst enemy about that. Now I know that people really appreciate people sharing their story, so they feel less alone. They do. So how, how has your man, your marriage and your family and your children, how has all of that rolled with the flow with all of this? Cause that's, you know, you went through a lot and that can, really disrupt a family yeah um well when my mom died you know I really try to keep my memory her memory alive especially for my son because he was young and my daughter remembered her more um it was it was difficult like I feel like in the beginning I wasn't as present as I could have been but you know it it it, it was what it was I'm again I'm survival the fortunate thing is when we get sober, other others around us get better. Like my actions, my little small things every day have taught my kids how to deal with things. I think at a much younger age than I could have ever learned. You know, I have a 22 year old daughter right now that's working in a home for mental illness addiction, 22. She's the, the resident caregiver for them. And she's used her, her own, her own story, her own uh, struggled to help others. You know, my son, this, the story before I told you about 
you know, resilience. And I don't want to be like, oh, it's all because of mom. It's definitely not. <laughs> it's because I've introduced them to other tools I've gotten from other people. And I'm like, oh, listen to this podcast. Or, oh, you know, like we had to drive somewhere the other day and we had this awesome, awesome guy on who's a mindset coach, Tim Kite. I'm going to give him a shout out. He doesn't know me, but there you go, Tim. And I had him on for my son to listen to. So it's not just because of my story, but it's because of the tools that I've, I've learned from fantastic leaders to share with my kids, even my husband, that we've all gotten better. We've all just have better coping mechanisms to deal with life. And life's been pretty good. Like I have to knock on my wooden dining room table here, you know, since sobriety, I became a flight attendant. Like that's a new career for me. That happened in sobriety. I get to travel all over the world. I get to talk to people like yourself and people that I would have never met. We met on an aviation social media website, right? Yes, we that <laughs> before. Like, like life is really good right now. And I don't take that for granted one second. You know, I still like, even though life is really good, I know that I have to still do the same thing every single day that got me to where I am right now. Yeah. Um, you know, question we, we, alcohol is so, has become so mainstream and a part of daily life and so accepted. And today we have the mommy wine culture and, you know, so much of that. And I think it's easy in that process to get caught up in what we're giving up, what we're losing uh, mm -hmm. when we stop drinking. Um, talk to us a little bit about what's gained. Um, well, what's gained, first of all, is I don't wake up in the morning and have that feeling of dread and anxiety and panic, you know, so that's huge. Most mornings, I still wake up, but that's okay. That's for another <laughs> <laughs> But I don't wake up with that awful feeling. Um, what's also gained are opportunities. I mean, I, I'm still a little socially anxious, you know, like I've always been that way. But I think I've gotten better at it, and it's not fault. I will say one thing I, I've, I've gained is making real connections in social settings. Like, first of all, people don't drink the way that I thought they did when I was drinking. <laughs> when we would go out to dinner, you know, with because our thing was my husband and I really he was a chef at one point, so we love food and we love like you know, going to different restaurants, having, you know, going to people's homes for dinner and moving around to, you know, a handful of like five different couples that will host a dinner. And, and I remember when I first became sober, thinking, wow, you people really don't drink as much as I thought you did. <laughs> and really what I gained was having a real conversation and remembering conversations and sitting across from somebody at dinner and really listening and not putting on the falsities of having a glass of wine in my hand and being a uh huh and uh huh and not and pretending to listen, but not really listening. So that was huge for me to be able to go out in a social setting and really be present and not trying to put on like the face of, you know, oh, there's there's Valerie, you know, isn't she so fun? Is, you know, no, this is what you got. And Hopefully I'll be invited next dinner party. <laughs> very good. Very interesting. I love the insight for sure. 
So I know you mentioned this in the book, and I personally am very big on journaling. It's a part of my daily routine. I do a thought download. I mean, my journal has been my best friend since I actually started journaling in junior high school. And, and certainly, like many people, I've gone through years and phases where I didn't journal so much, but it's a big part of it. And I know, you know that you've shared about your journaling process. So tell us about how and why you used it to capture the details, certainly of your preventative double mastectomy. Um, and your reconstruction surgery and all of that for your memoir. Tell us about that process and why. And so it's funny because when I first, when everything first came out, I, I thought um, everyone asked me like, when did you start writing? Yeah, I was never really a writer. Like I hadn't even taken a creative writing class. I have since post book, but you know, I, I wish I had taken a few writing classes, but anyhow. Um, and then one of my friends reminded me, it's like, Valerie, no, you, you were always writing. I used to write poetry all the time. And then right after my mom had passed away, all of these poems like poured on me. And I just put them in the folder and I have those, but like all of these poems poured on me. As far as the book goes, I, I didn't write to write a book, honestly. When I was going through my surgery, um, I unfortunately, you know, so many women gone through a double mastectomy that I had like one or two right in my, literally right in my own neighborhood that I could reach out to. And one of them was gracious enough to show me, talk to me a little bit more about the process. But she didn't have any like pictures or couldn't remember a lot of the details because it had been a year. And I don't think I would have remembered. Like if I decided, you know, in 2018 that, oh, I'm going to look back at 2014 and try to write about it. I would not have remembered all the details. So I knew right then and there, I'm like, okay, I'm going to start writing notes that if God forbid I have to go and tell another woman what my process is like, at least I'll have a reference point, you know? So that's where it started. And then I just started adding some feeling to it. Like it was really clinical. And then, you know, I found myself like sitting in the doctor's room, feeling these things and then going into the car and speaking those feelings into the phone. And all of those like journaling, the notes, the details of the surgery and emotions I was feeling throughout it. You know, we're in, it was a mess. Some of them were on my phone, some of them were on my computer, some of them were in the journal book. They were all over the place. And then in 2020, when we nobody was flying, really. My account wasn't flying. We had all this time. And I had a few years of pride in my belt and some clarity. I was like, you know what? I think you have something here. So I pieced it together into a manuscript. And that's how that became scattered to the core. It was, my intention was really to start off with, notes I could share with another woman about the mastectomy and it turned into this whole cathartic thing that became a book and one piece I will just mention really quick a part of that process was when I first did the first pass through at a copy editor she gave it back to me and she was like I need to know more about your mom and in there I think it's chapter two or whatever it is the quote is um oh gosh I'm gonna have to look Jackie because this is important <laughs> this was this was huge when I did this. I'm just going to reference the, whatever. The more the more a daughter knows her mother, the stronger the daughter. That because I every chapter I put a quote um, underneath the chapter, and um, that came because my copy editor said, "I need to know your mother more," and we are all as family in a better place. And I could go to her sister, my aunt, and say, "Hey." you mind if I come over with my phone and record like a, some stuff? You know, I'm going to ask you some stuff about mom. And three hours later, 
I think I had whatever that chapter is, chapter two, that was for my aunt, my aunt Donna. And that could not have happened if I decided in 2014, oh, this bad thing happened. Let me write a book about it. Like, right. <laughs> I need to, I need years. I need variety and I need to be able to talk about how she got to the place she did to take her life because that certainly was not talked about in the first few years of her, her passing. We couldn't even open up an, an album and look at her picture. Okay. That only happened in the last two years. Yeah. Well, I know this process in your book will help a lot of people who are going through this who do have questions. I mean, you know, I think it's it, it's been in such recent years that people have opened up and really started talking about anything that's really from a personal level of pain and grief and loss and depression and mental illness and mental health and all of that stuff. So I, I know that that's so important and going to be so helpful. And thank goodness there are people like you willing to put it out there um, and, and benefit others. So thank you for that, for sure. Well, thank you. Thank goodness there are shows like yours that are willing to have people like me on. Based on your experiences, what are some things that we can do every day, you know, to keep ourselves in that peak performance level to, to maintain that good mental and physical health? What can we do daily? I'm a big person so, about like slight edge things, right? It doesn't have to be this big, long list. It's like right, right. little things. So we went, I was telling you back to that, you know, my core fitness method. Again, this is not, you know, to minimize anybody like an active state of depression or, or addiction, because I am going to talk about exercise because for me, other than my sobriety, like that's a non-negotiable. For me, every day I need to move. You know, the profession that we're in, you know, in aviation, it's like, I remember when I first started flying, there were, there was, you know, some folks like, what are you going to do if you, you can't exercise or get to the gym? I'm like, I'm going to use what I have. Like, and maybe it's a walk that day, you know, maybe it's, you know, in my hotel room, getting a YouTube video on, like we just make it work because it's just one of those things I have to do pretty much every day, pretty, you know, be reasonable. Um, so I would say move more, stay connected. I, you know, I, I love my alone time, you know, like I, I like, I like myself a nice little, you know, evening with some candles lit and I love my alone time, but I know that the alone time can't turn into two days, three days to four days to five days to start to turn into isolation. So connections are important. Move more, don't isolate. And, um, gosh, if I had to have a third one and this is the hard, I'll put it up. This is the hardest one eat well. And I know that sounds so simple, but really hard to do because you have to have food every day. Like for me, giving up the drink, you know, like I don't have to have alcohol every day, but I have to have some food in my refrigerator. So I have to make really good choices because I'm telling you, if it's there in front of me, I'm probably going to make the bad choice of picking up the chocolate cake. And food is a hard one. For me. You know, it is, you know, especially travel. So I've really tried Okay, what my for my flight attendant, my pilot out there. What I've really tried to do lately is depending on the account you're on, if I'm coming in late night and I know like for me I can't work around food and then you know and then be hungry right away. It always happens like hour, hour and a half after you get to the hotel, it's like eleven o'clock at night, you're like, I can eat everything. So now I've tried to get permission to either grocery shop or order on my catering order what I'm going to and make it healthy because that's hard to do on the road. 
So, and there's great, there's for the aviation people, yeah, I'm sure if you haven't found those sites, there's awesome sites out there for people who travel and healthy fitness as well. Yeah. So move more, make connections, and try to do the best you can to eat well. Very good. How can friends and family be more supportive or supportive in general to someone who may be suffering with depression, anxiety, mental illness? Just tell them you love them. Um, tell them that you're just here for them. Try not to offer advice. It, you know, it, it's hard, you know, just, just listen and be there, for, sit there with them. Like everyone's case is different and it's so complex. You know, it's so complex, um, you know, so you just don't know where that person's at. So the best thing to do is just tell them that you love them. Try not to compare, you know, try not to say to somebody, well, at least it's not like this. That for somebody who's going through something, that'll shut them right down. If they open up to you and you say, well, at least it's not this. That, that's a good way to shut somebody up who might be experiencing some depression or anxiety. They will, they will fall down that rabbit hole of pain. So just be there, be present, be supportive. You don't have to have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. I still mess up and I still have to remind myself, stop, just be there. If I could add anything to that, along with the don't, you know, say, well, at least it's not please don't one up people either. There's nothing worse than when mm -hmm. someone is really ready to vent and be vulnerable and share something. And the person that, you know, you're sharing this to immediately wants to interrupt and jump in and tell you their story of how theirs was worse or similar or whatever. Be a good listener and take the opportunity later to, you know, empathize perhaps. And then once they're done, share in a very small way what that is. But whatever you do, don't one-up people. Yeah, heard that. <laughs> yeah. So tell us a little bit about what the goals were for you in writing your memoir, for writing Shattered to the Core. Um, really, the goals were, and, and remain the same, although I tweak it for different audiences, is, um, and, and what I share for information, um, is so other people won't feel so alone. You know, to, to, you know, I've got this dream <laughs> to be at a dinner party sometime and making the small talk and, you know, um, the shame of a, a mental illness that, that can often lead to, you know, if it's overtreated or undertreated, lead to problems with addiction. I have this dream that we'll all be able to like talk about something that we're going through that might be categorized under mental illness. As simple as we would talk about like, oh yeah, I've got a sinus infection. Oh my gosh, it's really acting up this medicine that helped me out, blah, blah, blah. Like, that's how simple I would like to make it. That's, that's my goal is to be able to talk about these things so they become less shameful to talk about because there's still stigmas. I mean, I'm attending this huge event in my community this Sunday where I'll be a presenter. And the main goal of this event is to still work on the stigmas that surround addiction and mental illness. So there's still work to be done every day. And that's my goal. I love that. So what's next for you? Do you have other books planned? I've got an outline. So I'm trying to get back to writing. I, haven't, I really haven't been writing. So I'm trying to get back to the discipline. And I love that. That's become my new word that I've learned more about because it makes the, the Catholic 
girl in me cringe when I hear that word. I'm like, you know what? Discipline means to learn. It means to grow. So I'm trying to get back into the discipline of writing a little bit every day to get that endurance down again, because I haven't been. And for the, so for the past few weeks, I, I picked that back up and I've outlined a goal for a new book. Can't talk about it yet, but you know, um, it's out there. And what's in store? Just keep having conversations in any kind of capacity that people will have. I love doing podcasts. I love going to events and talking with other people about this subject. So I do a lot of health fairs and I, I've done corporate events. You know, I just like having conversations, really. They're powerful. It's funny. I heard, I don't remember, it's been a while now that I heard uh, someone was struggling. I think this was on another podcast. Someone was struggling with the word discipline and like the harshness of it. And the person who was talking flipped it and just said, think of the word disciple. You're becoming a disciple of whatever it is that you're pursuing. And when you can kind of look at it that way, you're the student in pursuit of that uh, versus Mm -hmm. discipline as some type of harsh thing. So I I try to keep that in mind. (laughs) Yeah, I like that, Jackie. Yeah, Yeah. I felt that way about surrender too. Now it's one of my favorite words. I'm like, surrender? Ooh, surrender? That's like you're giving up. What do you mean surrender? And when I really learned what true surrender meant, you know, not having to figure everything out and letting go, then I'm like, okay, I like <laughs> and that's how I was with the word acceptance. It was like, no, that's like condoning. That's like saying it's okay. No, you know, the more time I spent with it, you know, there's that saying, pay attention to what you resist because yeah. what you resist persists. And so I've learned to do that when I'm resistant to something, it's like, ah, there's a life lesson for me there. So I'm going to journal about it and pay attention to it and come up, you know, figure out what, what this lesson is for me around that. I'm still not going to do it with the word voice. I'm just telling you right now. <laughs> I, was I, was, just at a, I was just at a girl's trip this, uh, this weekend and that word came up and it was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm not journaling about that word, Jack. I'm not sitting with it. <laughs> if you didn't catch what the word is, you'll have to check the show notes because I'll put it in there. <laughs> That's awesome. And bold. That's right. So how can people learn more about you, order the book? How can they connect with you? Um, well, if they can connect with me on two different places, well, a few different places on social media, on Instagram, I'm under Valerie J. Walsh author on Facebook. I have a Facebook page called the core fitness method. I'm also on LinkedIn underneath my name. And then, um, my book shattered to the core is on Amazon. It's on Barnes and Noble, wherever books are sold. And I will have all that in the show notes along with that word. Just for fun. (laughs) (laughs) I'm gonna have to put that in the intro so people uh, can stay tuned to the end, right? So, any final thoughts, Valerie? First of all, thank you for being here. It's been it's been inspiring to me. I've learned a lot. But what final thoughts do you have for us? You know, um, don't be so hard on yourself. You know, I I, one thing that can, can can to get me to stop something is to overthink it. Like, oh, I'm I'm never going to get better because I have to do all these things. Nope, just pick one simple thing. One simple thing that you would like to improve, get to the outcome that you want, and do that every single day. That's it. One simple thing. One small, because change takes time. Great thoughts. Great journey. Thank you for being vulnerable and sharing it with all of us. And I know that it's going to help. It has the potential to help every single person out there, even if it's just 
uh, passing it along to someone else who can benefit from it. So if you're listening, I encourage you share this with one other person who might be struggling with mental illness, depression, anxiety, um, you know, death by suicide of, of, of a loved one or any type of loss or grief. Thank you so much, Jack. I really, really like talking to you today. Myself included. Thank you. I am a mindset and peak performance coach, so I work mostly with women to help them rediscover their own sense of identity and purpose and create that better flight plan, avoid that turbulence, and put their own oxygen mask on first. So if you are interested in having a discussion with someone who's been a pilot wife for over 33 years, navigating thousands of miles and moments of life in aviation, along with mommyhood and business, schedule a call with me. Go to coach.pilotwifepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. If you like what you're hearing on the show, grab the Pilot Wife Checklist at pilotwifechecklist.com. And if you have a topic suggestion or a story to share on the show, go to ask.pilotwifepodcast.com. Share the show with any pilot wives, military wives, or anyone in aviation you know who might share and benefit from this similar experience. I'll see you on the journey.